Well, I'm excited. As Pastor Ross mentioned, later in this hour, we will have a very special opportunity to witness our own Pastor Elizabeth Dago as she takes the, her vows of consecration for ministry service in our faith tradition, the CNMA, or Christian and Missionary Alliance. Now, consecration is one of those religious words we don't use much in everyday life. Essentially, it means to be set apart for special service. In this case, we as a congregation and, and the Christian and Missionary Alliance, our parent denomination, are simply affirming publicly our belief that Elizabeth has been called and gifted by God for a, a lifetime of ministry service. And we, in response, are setting her apart to pursue that calling among us. It's a special moment in the life of a congregation. And Pastor Allen had every intention of being here to bring God's word on this occasion and to celebrate it with you, Elizabeth. Unfortunately, the COVID virus has raised its ugly head in the Hannah household, and Allen, Tara, and their son, Caden, are all quarantining this weekend and probably next as well. So today, I have the privilege of bringing God's word and opening the scriptures with you on this occasion. Next week, Pastor Ross will prepare to do the same. And with that introduction, let's turn to our text for today. It's found in the 16th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. <clears throat> now, for many of us, chapter 16 of Romans is like flyover country. We know it's down there, but never thought it was interesting enough to actually land and take a look. Well, that's because the 16th chapter of Romans is filled with personal and seemingly irrelevant greetings from the apostle to dozens of people whose names read like an endless series of tongue twisters. I mean, heaven forbid I'd ever be asked to read aloud from this chapter in my growth group. It would be a phonics nightmare. Well, today we'll only read verses 1 and 2. They're among the easiest of chapter 16. So would you please turn in your Bibles and read along with me. Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, where the scriptures say, I, Paul, commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant in the church of Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. The title of our message today is Commending Phoebe. As we prepare to study God's word, would you please join your hearts with mine in prayer? Well, Heavenly Father, earlier we sang the song, Oh, what a Savior! Isn't he wonderful? As we come to this time in your word, we just want to affirm that again. We have a wonderful Savior. And, and God, we pray now in this time as we open your word that you would use it to draw us closer to the Savior because he's wonderful. And it's our prayer that everything we do here tonight brings honor and glory to him. Do a work in our hearts. Do a work in this place. We pray in the name of the Savior, in Jesus' name, amen. 
And as we learned tonight from Phoebe and other women who like her, played such significant roles in the life of the early church, may the Lord be with you. Well, the great Alliance preacher and theologian, A.W. Tozer, had an interesting way of thinking about thorny issues over which Christians throughout the ages have tended to divide. Truth is like a bird, he wrote. It can't fly on one wing. Truth has two wings. Many of the doctrinal divisions among churches are the result of blind and stubborn insistence that truth has but one wing, continued Tozer. Each side holds tenaciously to one text, refusing grimly to acknowledge the validity of the other. Let's use both wings. We'll get farther that way, he concluded. Well, Tozer's practical and humble wisdom for handling difficult biblical issues should guide us even today in maintaining a healthy balance in our walk with God. And it can certainly help us get farther by reminding us to keep the main thing the main thing. Well, we'll also do well to today to remember Tozer's wisdom in our study as we briefly consider an issue that continues to spark disagreement among believers, specifically the matter of the biblical role God has assigned for women to play in leadership in the church. At the outset, let's agree that any thorough and fair-minded reading of the scriptures on this issue forces us to the realization that the truth has two wings. There are indeed passages in a few of Paul's letters that would seem to constrain women to a narrow place of leadership in the church, and that focus on other women, children, and governance in the home, and those sorts of things. Those passages sit among others that suggest that women should always wear head coverings and never wear jewelry or braid their hair. Are each of these biblical instructions meant to convey timeless, eternal truth? Or are they culturally defined illustrations from the first century that that serve rather to point us to larger, timeless principles still applicable in the 21st century? Principles like modesty, submission, and orderly worship as examples. Well, brothers and sisters, answering these questions can be difficult. However, the cultural context of Paul's original audience can't be ignored if we are to properly apply these biblical truths to our contemporary setting. For to be a respectable woman in the first century Greek and Roman world was to never appear on the street alone. To never go out without the covering of a veil that extended to your feet. To never attend a public assembly, much less speak in such a place. Women were considered property, wholly inferior to men. And it was scarcely better for women in the first century Jewish community where those who attended the synagogue were, were segregated in a place to themselves, away from the men. 
Rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman, wrote one rabbi of the era. And devout males in Jewish males in Jesus' day recited the following as part of their regular morning prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a woman. In this context, we can only try to imagine how countercultural and revolutionary, revolutionary it was for J- Jesus to carry on a conversation about worshiping God with a lone Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4. And we struggle to even imagine the impact of his original, on his original audience in first century Galatia. We struggle to imagine the impact of this sweeping statement. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. History itself bears witness that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been the greatest liberating influence for women that the world has ever known. In fact, if the Apostle Paul were alive today, and in a bit of an irreverent mood, he might turn to Gloria Steinem, the founder of the modern secular women's liberation movement, and say, Gloria, when it comes to liberating women, hold my beer. Unfortunately, time will not permit us to examine in detail each of the passages where Paul's instructions would appear to place a constraining influence on the role of women in ministry. Today, we can only acknowledge their presence and urge caution on the part of all to interpret these words first as they would be seen in a first century context before we settle on their application in our present day. But in Scripture, this matter of the role of women in ministry is indeed a bird with two wings. And as we move from the first and turn our attention to the second, we find a wealth of biblical examples of women who played a leading role in the development of God's people or the advancement of the gospel. In the Old Testament, for example, Deborah sat as a judge over all Israel, male and female. In her day, the commander of Israel's army refused to go into battle against their Canaanite enemies unless Deborah stood at his side leading the troops. And Esther, a Jew chosen as queen by the Persian monarch Xerxes, boldly stepped out of her domestic place in the background and into the spotlight of the king's court, risking her own life to save her Jewish people from the threat of mass extermination. Moving to the Gospels, we find Jesus chastising Martha for suggesting that her sister Mary should join her in serving guests rather than sit under Jesus' teaching at his feet. Martha, Martha, You're anxious and troubled. Mary has chosen the good portion, Jesus said. Luke chapter 10. 
So much for that rabbi's advice about burning the Torah rather than teaching it to women. And so much for that tired old chauvinist mantra, a woman's place is in the kitchen. Jesus put both of those things to rest in no uncertain terms. Women and men should both sit first at the feet of Jesus and then be about whatever business he's given them to do. Later in Jesus' life, we find it was four women who together with the apostle John stayed with him as he suffered on Calvary's cross. Where were the rest of the men? The scriptures tell us they were hiding for fear of the Jewish leaders. And on the day that changed everything, that very first Easter, Resurrection Day, to whom was it that Jesus entrusted the news that he was indeed very much alive? Was it to Peter the rock? Was it to James and John, the sons of thunder? No, they were still in hiding. Instead, the very first testimony, he is risen, was born on the lips of two people, both named Mary. Mark chapter 16. Throughout the New Testament, we find women using their God-given gifts to build up the body of Christ in a wide variety of ways. Philip Philip's four daughters had the gift of prophecy, Acts 21. Priscilla and her husband Aquila explained the way of God more accurately to the renowned preacher Apollos, Acts chapter 18. And, and, and note this interesting detail about that. Incredibly, for that time and culture, it was the wife Priscilla who received first mention in this marital ministry partnership. Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos more accurately, not the other way around. That's not an accident. Many other biblical examples could be cited, but let's conclude our study today by returning to the woman who launched us on this journey, Phoebe. She's mentioned but once in the New Testament, in our text from Romans chapter 16 that we read earlier. There we learn that Phoebe was a patron of Paul and others and a servant at the church of St. Cray, a suburb of the important Greek city of Corinth. Now the word used by Paul translated there as servant is the Greek word diakonos. It's the same word used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to church leaders serving as deacons. Some scholars believe that Phoebe was a recognized church leader, a deaconess which is just a feminine version of the word deacon that that actually hadn't even been invented yet when Paul wrote this letter. But beyond that, let's consider Phoebe's home church at Sincre in Greece. That was 700 miles away by sea from the capital city of Rome. The five to 10 day voyage from Corinth, Sincre, was dangerous to say the least. What on earth was Phoebe doing in Rome? Well, to answer that question, we have to pause to consider Paul's letter to the church at Rome itself. For for Romans is universally regarded as one of the most important books in the Bible. 
It provides us with such a, such a compelling and complete explanation of the gospel that it's been said of Romans that every spiritual revival in the history of the church has in some way been tied to a deeper understanding of this book. Many of the church's greatest leaders through the ages came to faith through the words of this letter, including the leader of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, and the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley. If the message of the gospel has been the most revolutionary change agent for good in the history of mankind, and we believe it has, the clearest explanation of that message is found in Paul's letter to the Romans. No wonder Romans has been described by some scholars as the most important letter ever written. What an amazing statement that is to even be named in that category, the most important letter ever written. And Bible historians tell us that Paul wrote this letter on or about 57 AD during a three-month stay in the Greek city of Corinth. Perhaps right now you're hearing echoes of that old radio commentator Paul Harvey as the rest of the story is becoming clear. Why was Phoebe in Rome? You see, Phoebe, the diakonos, the deacon or servant from the Corinthian suburb of St. Cray was the leader Paul chose to entrust with delivering the most important letter ever written to believers in the church at Rome. Romans, he said, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Welcome her. Help her with whatever she may need. Brothers and sisters, the issue of the role of women, the, the issue of the role of women in ministry leadership is a theological bird with two wings. As people who believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, yes, there are challenging passes, passages with which we have to wrestle as a faith community. But even as we do know this, the Lord Jesus Christ has always called and set apart women to significant ministry and leadership roles in the life of his church. It was true when, when Paul was commending Phoebe, and it's still true today. Thank the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth that Lord, you have a role and assignment for everyone in your kingdom, men and women alike. We, didn't, we know we stand at level ground at the foot of the cross, and we know that you've gifted each one for a particular role, for particular works in your church. God, tonight, what a privilege it is for us to set apart Elizabeth Daigle for the work that you've called her to. We thank you for that. We thank you for that affirmation in your word, Lord, that you have a place of significant ministry and of leadership for women in our midst. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.